Part of the problem is we used to have mental institutions where you take a sicko like this guy, he was a sick guy, and you'd bring him to a mental health institution. Those institutions are largely closed. So we're going to be talking seriously about opening mental health institutions again. Just over the same period that we have closed mental health institutions, we have seen a spike in violent crime. Do we have the spine to bring him back? I think we should. As president, I will. It's Demo the Democratic Party in Big Pharma that are unleashing the crazies on you, and nobody seems to have a solution for it. So here's one. We need to reopen the asylums. There are severely mentally ill people who do not have a right to wander our streets. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to the second weekly bonus episode that comes out every Monday and our entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library, Pre-order Jules' new book coming January called A Short History of Trans Misogyny and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today I am truly honored to be in conversation with not one, not two, but three really fucking fantastic guests who are here today so that we can talk all about demands coming from across the political spectrum to reopen asylums, which is part of this broader political movement to retrench the few so-called rights <laughs> that people with mental illness labels have, while also rewriting history in such a way as to retcon the largest decarceration movement in the United States as a total and complete failure that has, you know, led to a, a catastrophe, an epidemic of mental illness and housing crisis, et cetera, erasing nearly a century of struggle for psychiatric liberation in the United States is not only, you know, this failure, but again, the so-called cause of a multi-intersectional crisis. So... Let me introduce our guests. First, returning to the show is Liat Ben Moshe. Liat is Associate Professor of Criminology, Law, and Justice at the University of Illinois at Chicago and author of the book Decarcerating Disability, Deinstitutionalization, and Prison Abolition. Liat is also the co-editor of the book Disability Incarcerated, Imprisonment, and Disability in the United States and Canada and was also recently in the podcast feed in our Carceral Sanism session live recording from the Socialism Conference that we just recently put out in the main feed. Liat, welcome back to the Death Panel. Always so wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. And next is Leah Harris, who many of you may also remember from the session on carceral Satanism in the Socialism Conference series. Leah is a mad and disabled writer, facilitator, educator, and advocate whose work has appeared in The Progressive, The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Disability Visibility Project, and Mad in America, among many others. Leah writes the substack Writing Through and is also working on their first book called Noncompliant. Leah, welcome to the Death Panel. It's so great to be in conversation with you again. Thank you. Happy to be here. 
And finally, I am so excited to have Vesper Moore joining us. Vesper is an indigenous political activist, leader, organizer, public speaker, and educator in the psychiatric survivor and disability rights movement. Vesper is also the lead editor at Madness Network News, host of the Get Mad podcast, and COO of the Kiva Centers, which is a peer-run and trauma-informed organization that does peer support, training, and advocacy across Massachusetts. We also wish that Vesper could have joined us in Chicago, so it's really extra awesome to finally all be in conversation together. Welcome to the Death Panel, Vesper, and thank you so much for coming on the show. It's wonderful to be here, y'all. Thanks for having me. So as we talked about in our discussion of carceral Satanism in the Socialism Conference live recording, what we're going to cover today is part of a recent resurgence of calls to invest in and expand forms of carcerality that contribute to the targeted oppression and removal of mad or mentally ill populations under the guise of providing specially targeted treatment or care. The calls to return to the era of the asylum system are complicated and covered in layers and layers of pseudoscience and common sense narratives that reproduce ridiculous and dangerous ideas about treatment, care, cure, what mental illness or madness is, or the idea that people with mental illness labels are dangerous to society in general. But there is more going on here than the direct relationship of the state to mad people and people living on the streets. The call to reopen asylums also offers this inaccurate and warped view of the history of deinstitutionalization. It rewrites decades of austerity and extractive abandonment as the mere faults of individual pathology or the result of choices that individual people made about their own health. Or as we'll get into, you know, often the idea that we see reproduced here is that people can't make the choices, so the choice needs to be made for them. So today we're going to talk through these calls together from politicians grandstanding and using the call to reopen asylums as a catch-all fix for all sorts of social and political and economic crises. We'll talk through the way this is editorialized and do a close read of a particularly egregious article from the Wall Street Journal called It's Time to Bring Back Asylums. But I want to just start us off by taking a moment to give Leah, Liat, and Vesper each a chance to just name what we're talking about today in their own words. Because what we're doing is talking about actually a few intersecting dynamics and ideas that actually coalesce into one larger picture. So Vesper, since folks have not heard from you yet, would you like to start us off? Absolutely. I want to say for myself, as someone who's an indigenous political activist, that my experience, my life experience is grounded in something that I often feel is uh, is very different than a lot of uh, white white letter, white dominant movements. And I think I think something that's really important there is is there is a, a continuous connection between the many legacies of institutions in the United States. So for for myself uh, as a Taino person, uh, someone who's indigenous of Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, there were 60 Puerto Rican Taino young adults taken out of Puerto Rico and brought into institutions like the Carlisle School in Pennsylvania. And we see these legacies of many different institutions targeting different communities. I'd say specifically when we talk about psychiatric institutions, you have the Hiawatha Asylum for Insane Indians that labeled uh, indigenous natives with uh, with diagnoses such as horse stealing mania, um, which we understand, you know, uh, that that stealing horses are being labeled for, for for stealing horses as a diagnosis is clearly, clearly not factual or grounded in anything viable in that way. But 
when we look at what's happening today, I really think of it as a as a prevailing legacy of what we talk about as carceral sanism. And when we look at carceral sanism, I think it's grounded in histories of things like ugly laws, um, where people are deemed unsightly or particularly disabled and poor folks being deemed unsightly and unacceptable in the public view. And what we see is is an intentional targeting of those who are mad and disabled in the public. And we also see the very, very public killing of mad and disabled people in the public. So I do think that there's there's a lot in terms of, of, of legacies when we look at institutions. We, we, we hear this narrative of deinstitutionalization, which never fully happened, and really a, a falsehood in, in, in the public. And people looking at mental health treatment um, as the solution to the prison system or getting people out of the prison system and into treatment um, when in fact it is moving people from 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 one carceral institution to another carceral institution um, i think really when we look at this issue it's so confounding the ways in which it is used and the ways in which particularly mad disabled folk are portrayed in the media and in the public. That's where I really appreciate the way that you also connected this to, again, the kind of other quote unquote institutional legacy, which is that oftentimes people talk about like residential schools or the facilities that are specifically targeting indigenous populations as a kind of separate uh, logic or program from, for example, like the system of state asylums. But there really actually isn't a kind of separation between these two things. Like often, I think this can be something that you'll see, you know, a lot of great folks in Canada sort of developing work on trying to connect these two things. But a lot of times in the U.S., we don't necessarily um, see those narratives like brought together in this conversation as much as it absolutely should be. So I really appreciate you sort of centering that right from the beginning Leah, I wanted to throw it to you next. Yeah, just echoing, you know, that this call to reopen asylums just represents such a diffuse network, both historically and currently. So I think when people think about asylums, they tend to think of, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, which is, you know, such a fraction um, of what actually has happened in our history. Um, but yeah, I think... We look at there's this sort of web, this network of coercion that ranges from uh, outpatient commitment. So kind of taking the asylum walls and, and bringing them into the community. And we can talk a lot more about what that looks like um, all the way to right, your traditional locked congregate facility, um, what is referred to often in policy speak as beds. Right. Mm -hmm. And. People accuse activists, folk like folks like us, of being hyperbolic when we say that you know this <laughs> yeah. whole thing of you know we can also talk about this trend of expanding the criteria for involuntary psychiatric in intervention, making it easier to force people into outpatient and or inpatient um, commitment. Um, but you know when we have said that this sort of encroachment would lead to the literal rebuilding of asylums. Like we're not talking metaphorically here. Uh, in California, we can see right now how this progression can happen and is happening and how it might happen in other states, particularly those with large populations of unhoused people. 
Um, you know, and just to really point out that both liberals and conservatives favor these kinds of policies to reopen the asylums, even if they talk about them in slightly different ways. Um, and looking at California, there was first the enactment of care court, right, which is about forcing counties in California to create this regime of courts to coerce primarily unhoused people with, quote, serious mental illness diagnoses like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, um, com compelling them to accept treatment, quote, treatment, which is usually little more than forced heavy-duty neuroleptic or antipsychotic medications under the threat of a guardianship, right, if they don't comply with their care plan. Um, so, you know, it, it starts there with these kind of outpatient or, um, you know, in, involuntary outpatient schemes that lead to ever more coercive and restrictive uh, schemes. And so, you know, and also there's this rhetoric that care courts are going to address the housing crisis, right? Mm -hmm. So things get a ton of popular support, <laughs> uh, but state officials are already trying to sort of tamp down expectations from the public around that, um, saying that it's really not even going to dramatically change uh, houselessness, right? Um, and even if it was, I don't agree with, of course, with doing it under these coercive means. Right. And so then after that, we get these efforts in California to, quote, modernize the state's mental health services. Right. And it's really frightening. And I think we could spend time talking about how the rhetoric of modernization is being used to justify policies that are truly regressive and that are truly taking us back. 50 plus years. Um, so just to kind of share one other piece on this, there was just a $6 billion plus dollar bond measure, which just passed in the California legislature. And of this $6 billion, the lion's share is not devoted to housing, but to, quote, behavioral health beds, or yeah, um, which really we're talking about locked facilities. And folks were really scared that this was going to be the case. And originally it had said that these were going to be unlocked voluntary facilities that were going to be built with this multi-billion dollar bond measure. But just days before the legislative vote, the bill's language was amended literally at the last minute, and it removed the words voluntary and unlocked and replaced it with acute facilities, which is basically code for locked facilities. So this is a potential uh, true rebuilding of the asylums, and this bond will go before voters on the on the March primary election ballot. So I just kind of wanted to talk about how this is literally happening, at least in California and other states. You know, may take notice and 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 try to enact uh, similar policies. Mm -hmm, absolutely, and I I really appreciate the way that um, you know what you brought in there speaks to the fact that you know not only is this a call to reopen asylums that we're seeing um, as an explicit thing from people saying we need to rebuild these large total institutions like. There are also policies being put into place that are basically going to be um, demanding that capacity of the state be built up in response to various changes in the law, whether that's in California, um, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Massachusetts. This is like happening all over the United States. And, you know, as both you and Vesper have pointed out, you know, part of what's also going on here is like a there's a very powerful sort of dominant narrative that doesn't have a lot of like support behind it and might 
be at face ridiculous, like in the case of pathologizing stealing horses or those kinds of things that seem on their face, like, you know, to be obvious examples of overreach or misapplication or whatever. But it's actually a much more sort of broad, diffuse, informal and casual relationship that I think, Leah, you called this um, the asylum has been extended into the community through, quote unquote, tentacles of coercion. <laughs> and um, it just it's I think what we're sort of speaking to here is just the way that this is not just like all falling within sort of one traditional silo. Right. We tend to think of healthcare or mental health care as separate from all these different pieces, right? And what's going on here is that actually in this um, call to reopen asylums, you see the fact that, no, housing and the political economy in general have much more to do with shaping the landscape of pathology than anyone's inherent personal traits or characteristics that ultimately we have, you know, these sort of two systems that work together in order to accomplish tremendous things in terms of, you know, power, control, and all of this is done in the name of care, right? And at the end of the day, you know, it's not really the um, the issue that a lot of these people who are calling to reopen asylums are actually concerned with is not actually the care that people are getting, but it's, um, you know, the preferences of sort of what the dominant population is seen as. Um, and Liat, I'm going to turn to you now. Yeah, thank you. Um, so this is a great point I wanted to uh, connect to. So thanks for bringing us uh, here, uh, Beatrice. and. It's the point of, of the, the intersection. So Leah was brilliantly talking about the care courts, which is something we've uh, all also been kind of in coalition with a lot of other orgs um, been pushing uh, against. Uh, but the intersection of these courts, law, the infrastructure that we might not kind of think of, as you just suggested, Beatrice, as part of the kind of rebuilding of, of health and mental health is exactly that. And that's the, the kind of intersection or ne nexus of the criminalization and medicalization. Or uh, you can also talk about it as uh, the prison industrial complex, courts, criminal justice pathways, and the medical industrial complex, or just even uh, pathologization. Um, and this all is, of course, also related to the points Vesper was making. And I want to make that very clear that we cannot talk about criminalization or medicalization or pathologization without understanding that this all comes from colonialism and racism. And in the US, of course, particularly anti-Black racism. Uh, and also that is related to, uh, by that, I mean, pathologization and criminalization are, of course, related to gender and sexuality, which are also built on racism and colonialism. <laughs> and so as a construct and as a, you know, who we pathologize, who we criminalize. And so I think it's really important to understand all this as the, the nexus, right? This is like the baseline of things. So when we talk about bringing back something, this is what we mean. Like this is the, the kind of the nexus that we're talking about. And so when we're talking about, for example, modernizing mental health asylums, as uh, Leah was just mentioning, and I, I know we'll get back to it uh, a little bit later on, but just to say that this kind of like narrative of progress, right, to like modernize um, is exactly the reform that brought us asylums. Mm -hmm. You know, this is why asylums were built, um, psychiatric institutions. This is why prisons were built. These, they were built by reformers, 
right in the US by people who meant well, by benevolence. And this idea of modernizing a reform uh, is something that we need to pay attention to, not just as, you know, us as abolitionists, but as um, people who really um, care. I mean, I mean that word literally, because what happens without that uh, is that we don't understand how pathologization and criminalization all come from this nexus I just described and are all connected to what we might call corrections and corrections, meaning the correctional industry, but also really the eugenic meaning of correcting people. And if we don't understand, you know, how this works, um, then I think we say two things and both of them are problematic. And I hope our listeners at the end of today will learn why. And the first one is that the more things are evolve, the more they stay the same. This is the first thing people say, right? Mm -hmm. So when I say <laughs> asylum came from a reform and that we're now trying to modernize the reform and people are like, yes, we've come full circle and we have not. <laughs> so I, I want to put that out there that there's a lot of resistance to these things. We have not come a full circle. The more things stay that it's not the same. And so today we're going to talk about also what's different. And then the second thing uh, people say is that, um, you know, that one has nothing to do with the other. You know, this is not eugenesis. This doesn't come from colonialism. This is not, you know, whatever. So I want us to not fall into any of these fallacies when we talk about these things. I really appreciate you bringing up those two fallacies, Liat, because the next thing that we're going to do is go through these four clips I pulled. And um, listeners, you will hear these fallacies on flagrant display across the people who are talking. Um, and Leah, as you pointed out, sometimes... You know, the work around psychiatric abolition, it can be really easily reducible to a kind of meme that, you know, everything that folks like us are saying, all the work that is done in this area, that this is like all exaggeration. I mean, um, oftentimes, and I think you'll even maybe hear this in... in um, in the Wall Street Journal piece, if I recall correctly, there are too many primary sources too full of bullshit for me to exactly remember off the top of my head right now without looking at my notes which one this is in. But what you will see or hear um, rather is that, you know, oftentimes when the kind of exposés or things like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest are talked about, these kind of cultural touchstones that most people use to understand what the total institution was, what an asylum is, et cetera. You know, the other cultural piece is, again, um, like Halloween tours through asylums. That's another way that a lot of people come to understand sort of what these places are and were. Um, and the the claim is always that, you know, oh, this was just like uh, some bad asylums here and there, just some bad doctors. It's a nurse ratchet. You know, it's bad actors. It's exaggeration. Um, but that is is quite far from the truth. So to sort of just illustrate what some of these calls are like to reopen asylums, I'm going to play four short clips. And after each clip. We'll take a second and the four of us will discuss, you know, some of the tropes um, of each of these various calls to reopen asylums. And part of what we're doing here is just to sort of one push back against that claim that, you know, uh, we're all coming from a hyperbolic position, but um, to also, you know, get folks who may not be so dialed into this as we are just aware of the specific architecture of the way that this is talked about. So we're going to hear from four politicians in the U.S., um, each will attempt to explain their takes on why the answer to what many of them frame as an intersecting crisis of mental health and homelessness um, that is located, of course, in 
individual dysfunction and disconnected from the political economic context that we all live in. Um, And they're going to sort of explain like why the asylum is the answer to this crisis that they locate, you know, within people's behavior. So first we have Donald Trump from 2018. And this is probably one of the better known calls to reopen the asylum. Um, So I'm going to play that clip. Part of the problem is we used to have mental institutions. And I said this yesterday, we had a mental institution where you take a sicko like this guy, he was a sick guy, so many signs, and you'd bring him to a mental health institution. Those institutions are largely closed because communities didn't want them. Communities didn't want to spend the money for them. So you don't have any intermediate ground. You can't put him in jail because he hadn't done anything yet, but you know he's going to do something. So we're going to be talking seriously about opening mental health institutions again in some cases, reopening. I can tell you in New York, the governors in New York did a very, very bad thing when they closed our mental institutions, so many of them. You have these people living on the streets. And I can say that in many cases throughout the country, they're very dangerous. They shouldn't be there. So we're going to be talking about mental institutions. And uh, when you have some person like this, you can bring them into a mental institution and they can see what they can do, but we got to get them out of our communities. Okay, so who wants to jump in on this whopper first and point out some of the the tropes that that we often see that that Trump ran through there? Well, first throwing it back on the community mm-hmm. and saying like, oh, communities didn't want this. And also uh, he's he, he's referencing like, oh, you know, communities didn't want certain institutions in New York. And it's like, clearly not understanding or very much knowing uh, of institutions like the Willowbrook State School and the horrible conditions um, in which disabled people were were basically tortured in. You know, um, it's this is a, another piece of, of I find from a political perspective, taking advantage of generations, not actually knowing the horrors of these asylums and these institutions. And I think to Leia's point and Liat's point earlier, that's the dangerousness really of this of this modernization, if you will, of the asylum. So, um, you know, not to make light of the situation, but I do think this is so, so, so repetitive and predictable that it is, um, you know, uh, slightly comical at least. Um, but equally dangerous. So one of the things we should think through uh, together collectively is what do we call dangerous? Mm-hmm. So that word I'm sure will repeat in many of the either the clips or the things people read about the issue of um, kind of bringing back the asylum. And it, it really comes back to the construction of what danger is. So I'm just going to go back to what I said earlier. I mean, ra- danger is racialized, it's gendered, um, and it's very related to Sanism, it's very related to carceral Sanism, you know, meaning the the way that we uh, basically operationalize uh, who we think is, quote unquote, mentally ill or not sane or not rational and what we do about it. Um, so the use of pathologization to um, justify carceral expansion, basically. And so dangerousness underpins a lot of that. Um, and we can't just take that word and kind of leave it hanging. Right. And then the what. Uh, Trump does with that. And quite frankly, 
Obama did with that as well, mm-hmm. is to create an infrastructure of preventive detention. So of course, Obama did that um, in regards to Guantanamo and other places that we don't like to connect mm-hmm. with the kind of uh, struggles for, for liberation that um, certain kind of rights movements kind of try to shy away. Uh, but I want to say that those are connected struggles. And the whole idea of preventive detention, again, comes from eugenics, right? It's the idea that people are born criminals, as Nicole Rafter, the late Nicole Rafter, um, her book is called Born Criminals. And so it's, it's a, again, a discourse that comes from, uh, from eugenics and is connected to race and colonialism and also Islamophobia, uh, anti-Semitism. The last thing I would say, and I'm not going to go into, is this idea of living on the streets, right? Like that institutions closed. Um, they left people to be living on the streets. So in, ad- in addition to being dangerous, now they're also unhoused. And so we have to open the asylums because um, that is where people should go, as if an asylum is somebody's home. Such good points. I will revisit a couple of those tropes in, in future clips. And also uh, the asylum is home and as a, a place of refuge features really heavily in the framing of the Wall Street Journal piece. Uh, Leah, I want to leave it open for you next. Yeah, you know, Trump has a real uh, romance slash love affair um, with institutions. Um, I remember some other remarks that he gave. Um, maybe they were also the same remarks, but you know, he talks about he waxes nostalgic for, you know, growing up in Queens and and all of the mental institutions that he would see <laughs> in his childhood. <laughs> and then he says, all of a sudden you go and you don't see them anymore. What happened to all of those beds? Right. And and it's also right. There's this nostalgia for the institution and and also the context that there's there's so many reasons why politicians will call for rebuilding the asylum. But yeah, it does get back to these kinds of tropes, either around dangerousness or helplessness, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, again, like Liat was saying, this idea of almost like a preventative minority report kind of thing. Like, if we had these institutions, you know, these mass shootings wouldn't happen, people wouldn't be on the streets, right? That it's kind of like this catch-all um, for for literally every every problem in our, in our society. Um, yeah. And, and he always kind of cu- talks about different reasons why the asylums were um, were closed. You know, he'll say in one case, the communities didn't want them. In the other case, he'll say it was budgetary reasons and pretty much talk about every potential reason except for what Vesper mentioned, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, these places are horrific sites of violence, abuse, torture, and neglect. And that's the piece that I think rarely gets airplay from any of these politicians from the left to the right. Absolutely. All such great points. I mean, Vesper, I really appreciate you bringing in Willowbrook. Uh, the the fourth and final clip we'll go through will specifically uh, address Willowbrook. And I know uh, folks who are, um, you know, big death panel listeners may have uh, recently heard our episode with Dr. Bill Bronston, who is one of the uh, doctors who helped organize um, the movement that resulted in the closure of Willowbrook, and he briefly at the beginning of our conversation, um, you know, gets into some of his experiences there. So, you know, for folks who are like, is that name familiar? Like, yes, absolutely. You heard about it recently and it's um, horrific. But again, like these kinds of things are treated as like individual moments or Vesper, as you pointed out, you know, Trump is saying here like, well, the closures happened, you know, because people didn't want them. 
right? This is all about like this population not being desirable and what the desires of that dominant group are and how we meet those desires, right? And not about, you know, care, right? Like care um, here uh, as a kind of ideology or idea was like being given to the audience, which was being assumed to be other sane, quote unquote, people who also, you know, reasonably, quote unquote, want the removal of all these, quote unquote, crazy people from their community that they don't want them locked up, but they don't want them on the streets. So Trump sort of presents this as like the less bad of two options, right? Um, as if we made a mistake, we've learned from it, and now we can return to that humane practice. And Liat, I really appreciate also the way that you connected this to the war on terror, the idea of sort of preemptive um, sorting eugenics and things like that. And, and Leah, as you're saying, you know, this is... Um, and this is also being proposed as a solution to to mass shootings as an alternative to, you know, having a discussion about anything else related to to guns. Right. It's it, it locates the problem of mass shootings again in, quote unquote, mentally ill individuals making individual choices in a vacuum. Right. And, and that could be a very kind of compelling um, and I think is often repeated kind of without uh, a lot of questioning. This this frame is something we see quite um, often. So, the next is is a quite recent one. We have tech entrepreneur uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is um, a Republican presidential candidate, and this is from the first Republican presidential debate earlier this summer that happened in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And we also have a mental health epidemic in this country. Just over the same period that we have closed mental health institutions, we have seen a spike in violent crime. Do we have the spine to bring him back? I think we should. As president, I will. Okay, so that that one's short and sweet. 13 seconds of pure fucking nonsense. Liat, since your book really deals with this particular trope, I'm, I wondered if you wanted to jump in on this one first. Which trope, though? <laughs> so much. The, well, I know. I was going to say there's so much in 13 seconds, right? I was thinking specifically of the the framing that this was a simultaneous um, sort of switch, right? That we closed institutions and that proportionally directly correlated to, you know, an exploding crisis of, um, you know, criminality. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for narrowing it down because it is a lot. In I know. 30 Sorry. Seconds to like, no, no, no. Don't apologize. It's not, um, you know, you didn't say those things. Um, but, um, you know, to, just to briefly, briefly touch on that, um, one thing to really remember is that the deinstitutionalization movement, uh, first of all, that there was two of them, uh, because I know you're going to sh- um, give a clip about Willowbrook. So there was de- the closure of uh, psychiatric institutions, which I think is what most of us think about when we think about deinstitutionalization. And that historically has happened, um, you know, the largest population in psychiatric institutions um, was in 1955. So pretty much every day afterwards uh, was less. And particularly in terms of policy, we're talking about the 60s, uh, beginning of 70s as the kind of heyday of deinstitutionalization in mental health. Now, there was also deinstitutionalization in intellectual and developmental disabilities. And so um, that's really important to note because that was in a different time period. So that uh, didn't really begin nationally. Of course, there's variations um, in the um, maybe mid 70s and, and, and 80s. Well, we kind of see the heyday of that. So I think that is really important. The reason why it's important is because when do we start to see like homelessness on mass, like happening in the US? 
that is not in the 60s. <laughs> it's not in the 70s. It's in fact more in the 80s. It's the beginning of neoliberalism as a policy that was imported uh, by Reagan from Thatcher. And we see at the same time austerity measures in regards to mental health that resulted in things like the closure of psychiatric hospitals, although um, that's not the only reason why these institutions closed. They closed also because of the resistance of um, movements, <laughs> including people um, who were institutionalized within them and their allies and their family members and so on, and activist lawyers, um, but also um, because of these austerity measures in which you know Reagan famously um, said that uh, he's going to close down all the psychiatric uh, institutions in California. And at the end of the day, he didn't close all of them, but he came like really close. This is what when he was governor, when he became a president, he did that on kind of like a more national um, scale. And the money, of course, never went to community mental health, uh, which, you know, the thing that Vesper was just talking about, uh, what the community wants or what the community gets. And at the same time that every public kind of welfare uh, institution was either abolished or diminished, including education and housing. By housing, I mean affordable, accessible, but also general <laughs> housing assistance that existed since, you know, the 40s, uh, since the New Deal. That's uh, vanished or diminished during uh, the neoliberal era up until today. And at the same time, we see a boom in corrections. The money goes to, it doesn't go away, um, it goes to the buildup of policing and the infrastructure for incarceration, what we um, today call the prison industrial complex. And so we see those things happening at the same time. And just because, you know, we say in social science, um, uh, correlation is not causation, just because two things happen at the same time doesn't mean that one led to the other, meaning, yes, the closure of psychiatric institutions happened at the same time as the rise in incarceration, but it happened because of a third factor, which is neoliberalism and racism, which are, of course, completely related. And so um, I think that's really the point that we should uh, think through. Absolutely. Thank you, Liat. I mean, and also if listeners want to, you know, learn more about that history, Liat's book is uh, fantastic. And we've also done two interviews just about the book in the last uh, three years, one when it came out in 2020, and then one in the fall around when health communism came out, because obviously, you know, Liat, your work has been um, deeply inspiring to, to Artie and I, so we wanted to make sure to sort of revisit it. But um, I want to leave it open for Leah and uh, Vesper, if either of you want to jump in next, as we were joking, obviously, in this 13-second clip, there is so fucking much. So I can also replay the clip, if that would be helpful, because it was so short. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to hear it again. I mean, All right, I let's do it again. I'd love to hear it again. <laughs> we'll never get these 13 seconds back, but as long as we get one laugh out of it, then it'll be worth it. All right, here we go. And we also have a mental health epidemic in this country. Just over the same period that we have closed mental health institutions, we have seen a spike in violent crime. Do we have the spine to bring them back? I think we should. As president, I will. I think what's most striking when I hear this first is like, do we have the spine to bring them back? Mm. That that emphasis, uh, if that doesn't scream carcerality to you, I don't know what will. <laughs> um, but but, but as, aside from that, what I want to focus on is is really, and I, I think this is the emphasis of, of a lot of Liot's work and, and a lot of the writings, is this is the intersection of 
being viewed and treated as dangerous and disposable simultaneously in society and a misinformation campaign of dangerousness and disposability to be able to exert political control over populations of people. And what I mean about that is, is that when we talk about the asylum, we see, and you know, Angela Davis refers to this wonderfully with, with prisons, we see an effort to disappear people. Historically, currently, what is being focused on here? And and when I hear what it's like, it's like, are are we ready to bring them back to to kind of solve this problem? Right. I think people have such a disconnection because of carceral sanism that there is this piece of like, oh, okay, we're not viewing them as people. We're viewing them as a problem. Mm-hmm. And there is such an impact uh, when we look at public and private policy that that relates to this in the way of of of, okay, we are always viewing these people as a liability. We are always viewing them as disposable and as people who shouldn't be seen or perceived in the public. And a lot of that also comes from a fear of I don't want this to happen to myself. I don't want this to happen to my family. Um, But. Again, it is political strategy. It is fear mongering. It is a lot of things. And when we look at care court, which doesn't actually mean the word care. <laughs> it is a community assistance, recovery and empowerment. And care court doesn't mean any of that, honestly, if you were to ask me. Um, we see this connection of basically getting unhoused, mad, disabled people off of the streets, removing them in mass trying to bring them into these institutions, labeling them as gravely disabled and that gravely disabled, meaning if you're actively using or, or whatever, again, that criminality, that disposability. And then once you are deemed gravely disabled, making it easier to put you into a conservatorship. So when, when we look at all of those pieces, right, uh, again, it is, it is a continuing prevailing uh, surveillance capitalism and a carcerality in our society that I don't think um, we we fully recognize or that the public is, is is fully ready to recognize. I think it also, you know, the kind of framing of like, I'm brave enough to be the one that calls for this is often the flip side of the compassion coin. You know, you have some people saying this is this is a moral mandate that we have to scoop people up off the streets and give them treatment, whether they want it or not, whether they know they need it or not. You also see that sort of flip side of like, I'm the only one who's like got the balls to be not politically correct and talk about the fact that like we need to be brave and call for this thing again. And it's kind of like, I think really, you know, a, a sort of softer, lighter version of that attitude is is quite common and very common on the left. You often see people say like, oh, ADHD, mental health diagnoses, depression, bipolar disorder, BPD, all these like people putting labels in their bio, like mental illness is so trendy. Maybe we've destigmatized mental illness too much. And now we're just surrounded by all these people who have made their pathology, their personality. And, you know, there's a kind of like, grift from psychiatrists who make that their brand, the kind of over-treatment folks who focus on sort of 
demonizing people seeking treatment as the problem but then there's also the more like casual cultural idea that just like it is brave to say bad things about mad people because you know there's there's this kind of um framing that i think often is the same misunderstanding about disability and culture which is like that um having this identity, having these labels gets you a kind of um, what disability theorist Ellen Samuels calls like a currency in kind. The idea that like benefits, uh, whether it's SSDI or SSI or Medicaid, even though these come with, you know, forced poverty and tremendous suffering and surveillance and all of these administrative burdens, that that is an advantage that people are being given um, the equivalent of currency, the equivalent of an advantage over quote unquote normal people. And so part of this is also that all of these ideas like, you know, Vesper, as you're saying, this ties up into like a broader austerity mindset about kind of like who society is even fucking for. Yeah. Like I kind of view comments like Ramaswamy's as like this. Yeah. Just to echo what other folks are saying, like this carceral compassion or this like compassion cop kind of mentality. And it's often juxtaposed, as y'all were saying, to us as the, quote, civil libertarians or, you know, rights based people who don't give a damn if people are languishing in jail or uh, unhoused and suffering. Like we think that's part of a, quote, alternative lifestyle, which we will, I think, get back to. But yeah, that it's just like there's this um, basically almost like a projection that that, you know, we are the people like mad disabled activists or disability rights activists are the people who don't care and don't have the courage, the moral courage to do what must be done, right? So it's like this this way to really discredit and silence people who are continuing to like say, can we please, you know, have these few and very tenuous rights that we achieved, you know, 50 years ago, can we please like hang on to these and not erode these? Um, yeah, and it's it's the, the other thing about the sort of mental illness equals violence equals dangerous equation is that, you know, this has been um, reinforced in the public imagination for um, half a decade, probably much, much longer. But, it, you know, in the in more recent decades, it's been reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. And so when people say, hey, you know, people with these diagnoses are actually far more likely to be the victims of violence than the perpetrators, it's kind of like, crickets, right? Mm -hmm. And the persistence of this drumbeat, again, of mental illness equals violence equals dangerous. We have to get them off the streets. Um, it's really working. Um, I, I remember there was a study in health affairs maybe um, five years ago saying that the American public has increasingly come to associate uh, specifically the diagnosis of schizophrenia with dangerousness. And that's what so many of these laws are really targeting is people with these diagnoses. Um, and that this leads to, um, you know, public opinion that's in favor of expanding forced treatment laws. So the, the kind of compassion cop mentality is really, really taking root um, in the public beyond just the politician's rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think when you contrast that actually with like the kind of things that you see, like the very neoliberal, like public health, mental health awareness campaigns and things like, you know, calls to destigmatize mental illness as itself a like a solution, right, to just talk about the stigma, get makes it go away, often like I think portrays this kind of 
spectrum of mental illness, right? Where it's it's up to the individual person, basically. We're like deputizing people to turn themselves into mental health cops, right? Where we're really saying to people, you can see, you can evaluate, you know, like I know, you know, these politicians are saying, not me, is saying, God, these people are so horrible. I hate reading this stuff out loud and stuff like that. And I'm like, what if someone quotes me out of context and I'm reading one of these assholes? But it's like when they say like, you know, oh, you know, you citizen, you can tell when someone's mentally ill like I am. It's also deputizing people and um, literally sort of wrapping up membership in the body politic with the idea that it is like, you know, your responsibility as a citizen to seek out, identify and notify the state for the purposes of removal, the people who you think are not supposed to be part of your community. And I appreciate the way like, you brought in the sort of specificity also of schizophrenia, um, you know, as um, we've been talking about. Also, this is like hugely tied up into the the very sort of root of, of psychiatry and of the determination between sane and not sane, sound and unsound. These kinds of frameworks um, have explicit, explicit roots and uh, their sort of original context is in um, the transatlantic slave trade, in the kinds of anti-Black determinations that render people uh, property based on e eugenic ideology, where you have sort of this history um, of uh, naturalizing class position as earned or biological truth, right? Um, that gets played out again in the ways that also, this is talked about, right? Like the idea that it is just like the kind of destiny of society to be made available only for the sane, right? The the commandment that we must be sane um, is also sort of implied in this, right? Like all of these, these statements that we've been going through not only say something about what we should do um, to people with these labels, but they say something to the people with these labels which is more indirect, which is that, you know, you're not welcome here. Society's not for you. And they, you know, in the same ways that administrative burdens make people feel like fucking shit, these kinds of frameworks, like they aren't just like rhetorically bad. They have emotional weight. They do damage and they do harm um, in so many different ways. And, um, this next one's interesting. I, I read part of this actually in our carceral sanism um, panel in Chicago, but I have the full clip here. This is a Republican congressman from Florida, Matt Getz, from April of this year. Listeners will notice immediately that there are some differences in his framings, but it's still the same genre flavor or vibe, so to speak. But what we see here also is the kind of expansion and application of like just general political thought. Um, to this and sort of who qualifies as crazy for, for all sorts of reasons. It's Demo the Democratic Party in Big Pharma that are unleashing the crazies on you and nobody seems to have a solution for it. So here's one. We need to reopen the asylums. There are severely mentally ill people who do not have a right to wander our streets seeking and selecting who they are going to terrorize, whether there is criminal culpability or not, there is a permanent element of society that is dangerous. And it does not make us more just or more compassionate to have them walking amongst the rest of us. Because then you see the type of loss of life that we've seen too frequently from these acts of violence. Now, subject to due process, of course, in our constitution, we have to put some people away. And that might not be 
politically correct to say, but it is the truth that we encounter, especially in a world in which we're getting so many people chemically addicted. Good people have a right to exist in the country without wondering if some crazy leftist or mentally ill individual lurking around the corner is about to post up and kill you. I'm sorry, I can't help but laugh at the way he ends that one. Um, it's a truly horrific, yeah, truly horrific example um, of this argument. Oh, I think I first want to say that there is, and you can hear it very clearly here, this when when you speak out, you are labeled as non-compliant or you can be labeled as non-compliant when you when when you speak to injustices, you can be viewed as unreasonable. And I think I think when you hear him say particularly like we need to basically put some people away, who is that some? You know, there's there's this dangerous generalization that that a lot of these politicians often get into and they're like they're like oh yeah you know some people need it and you'll find disproportionately at a, a very very alarming rate it's usually black brown indigenous people of color it is it is usually um people who are who are deemed poor or or, or otherwise it is usually people who are trans and there's this criminality again with identity um, how you associate, whether or not if you speak out, right, um, mm-hmm. and and the use of it as a tool for control and again disappearing people. But I think I think here you can you can see a little bit more when when talking about uh, leftists and 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 other folks that um, that it is this it is this like how how can we just let them live among us? It's not actually dignified to let them live, live among us. And I'm like, mm-hmm. get out of here. <laughs> There's like a couple pieces that I just kind of want to pick at here. Um, first, even just like, let's talk about this designation of severely mentally ill. Like this is the sorting. This is the eugenics that we're talking about, right? It's not, a, it's a legal designation. It's not, it's, yeah. And anyway, even if it wasn't a legal designation, <laughs> but it is, it's sort of choosing this, right? That's synonymous with this permanent element of society that is dangerous, right? So again, coming back to people with these certain diagnoses, which is now being expanded to drug users, right? Uh, like there's this almost synonymous here in the way that he's talking about it. Um, and it's a nod to due process, uh, mm-hmm. but 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 ultimately, ultimately, really, we we need to put people away. There's a there's a very much of this us versus them language that's embedded in his his uh, rhetoric, uh, and then he uses this you know term good people, right? And so, of course, the flip side of that is these bad people that are running around killing people. You know, like Vesper said you know, that conflates people, again, with this severe mental illness diagnosis with activism, right, with activists on the left, right? And it also makes me think about, um, you know, there's a book called The Protest Psychosis by Jonathan Metzl, which talks about this this history of psychiatrizing um, and psychiatrically incarcerating uh, black power activists in particular, who, whose, whose activism was seen as pathological. So, you know, I think, again, 
yeah, there's just these echoes that keep coming back around in, in different ways over and over and over. But ultimately, yes, it comes down to eugenics at its core. Just quickly to say, and I really want Leia to get into the due process stuff um, maybe later, um, because I don't have a lot to say about that. Um, but just to say, you know, very quickly that, um, first of all, this conversation is really helpful, even for me, because even though, you know, these clips are, um, you know, not necessarily shared as clips, but there's something about media literacy and uh, political media literacy or any kind of media literacy, social media literacy, in which um, it's really important to kind of break down these like little sound bites. Um, but I also want to say that it's really important to break them down from like, I think it's easy to do with like Trump and the all the all the three um, clips, actually. But it's a little bit harder to do on, on people on the left. So I really appreciate what Leah and Vesper already said uh, about that, um, because we hear some of these as axioms, meaning kind of like taken for granted things, not just from people on the right and not just the far right and mm -hmm. not even just the middle and um but really left and sometimes um our people um people that we are in community with we i mean uh, those of us now on the on the panel but maybe listeners as well um and i'm reminded of when you were talking beatrice earlier trying to kind of connect uh the clips you were mentioning these anti-stigma campaigns uh against uh quote-unquote um the stigma of mental illness and I'm reminded of um, the late uh, Judy Chamberlain and uh, I don't know, Leanne Vesper, if you were as well. But, you know, she she would always say things like, uh, leave me alone with these like anti-stigma campaigns. The power that oppresses me is not stigma. It's psychiatry. <laughs> and it's so important to hold that also as a mirror to people who think that they're the benevolent cop. All the things you were saying earlier, right? The um, the carceral Satanism that kind of comes from within, I'm kind of as interested in that um, as I am in the other stuff. Such a great point, Liat. And actually, I feel like now is perhaps not necessarily the worst time to spend a second talking about this due process idea, right? Because this this is really like an important rhetorical point um, in Getz's uh, framing here where he says, oh, yeah, we've got to do this thing, right? But of course, of course, of course will make sure due process is there. And and so often, you know, when we're talking about reforms, Leah, as you were talking about um, in our conversation um, on the socialism conference panel was like, you know, we are seeing actually like specific erosions in due process as part of the current sort of dynamic that we've been talking about, which is like, it's not just a call to reopen asylums. It's also these other policies, whether it's a care court in California, whether it's um, things going on in Virginia, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, um, Ohio, I think Colorado also. Um, and in New York, you have these policies that are slightly shifting due process, slightly shifting what some of the guardrails are, what some of the requirements are, what some of the criteria are here and there, are these little tweaks that, as we're saying, like are going to actually produce a structural demand to rebuild the total institution to return to the large warehousing model because of the kinds of dynamics that they're trying to put into motion, the kinds of expansions, again, these sort of like coercive and carceral tentacles that 
are not just about, you know, is a person um, being sent to, you know, an asylum, a residential facility or not? It's about are you being put on um, something that is part of that pathway, right? Like, because this is the kind of thing that I think is also often represented in the way this is talked about with a kind of sterility or um, a siloing, right? As if like the uh, severely mentally ill, quote unquote, can be somehow separated from the rest of the mentally ill, the working well population, and that this isn't actually like a dynamic that affects the entire landscape of this kind of you know, cohesive like framework that people who who push for these things have put together where there's like a, a line in the sand of when you're exploitably mentally ill and you're allowed to be in society so that your surplus labor value can be extracted. And, you know, the mentally ill who are marked for extractive abandonment, who are, you know, made of use to the economic order by other means, as Marta Russell would have said, um, you know, speaking about the idea of the money model of disablement and the ways that people who are either certified not able to work or who are not able to work or who do not work, um, how their bodies become part of the material that the economy uses as a kind of raw material to reproduce itself. Yeah, no, I mean, there's just there's my mind is just kind of going in a hundred different directions. But yeah, I think just kind of echoing what you're saying, Beatrice, it's like we really need to look at recent history. Right. And how that has worked, that this is, you know, I think people assume that, you know, people could be locked away for life. You know, maybe that was in the 1800s or right, that this is in our very distant history. Right. Based on a psychiatric diagnosis. Um, but, you know, even as little as 50 years ago, people could be committed to asylums for potentially for life solely based on the testimony of a few psychiatrists. Right. And this is based on a legal doctrine called parents patriae, which assumes, again, the state to be a benevolent force that's intervening for the best interests of people seen as unable to care for themselves. Right. And that's what we're sort of hearing in a lot of these um, politicians rhetoric is like, we need to be that benevolent force once again. Right. And so what we saw coming very aligned with the institutionalization and aligned with civil rights and all of these awarenesses about the horrific nature of these institutions is when you kind of, um, it's the beginning of this due, what's called the due process revolution when we look at mental health law and policy. And it, and I think this is so important to really think about because it put psychiatric incarceration on the same footing as incarceration in jails and prisons. Right. So I think really made that link that I think has been lost today where psychiatric incarceration is seen as a public good and or violence prevention. Right. Um, but, it, you know, and of course, I'm I'm against all forms of incarceration as an as an abolitionist. But the thought behind these right is that both forms of incarceration should require due process protections and that it should not be as easy as two psychiatrists, you know, saying someone needs to be put away for life. Um, so that that's where we get to. And you can argue whether or not this was a good idea, but we get to this idea that in order for someone to lose their liberty, 
for a mental health, quote, related reason, the, the state would have to prove that they were an imminent danger to themselves or others, right? Um, and and that, you know, or gravely disabled in the sense of, of unable to provide for their needs. Um, and that's really what is under attack right now is that standard. And the, the purest forms of the, that standard that was enacted in the late 1960s, early 70s, you know, things like the Lanterman Petrus Short Act in California, which is literally under attack at this point in time. Um, another example is the Lassard decision in Wisconsin, which was um, taken up by many, many other states. But they establish a pretty high bar for taking away someone's liberty. But that has been eroded for years. I mean, it's not new that that they're trying to erode these standards. Um, but I think that. That's just the part that I think is so critical to, for us to really, really understand, um, you know, that that um, this due process is under attack and they want to return us to this this point where, you know, with care court, right, anyone over the age of 18 can say, hey, I think this person is eligible for care court, you know, and there are certain, you know, uh, procedures, et cetera. But but yeah, we're I think we're really looking at an effort to um, make it easier and easier and and to expand and expand and expand the categories of people who are um, the categories of people who can be funneled into inpatient and or outpatient forms of commitment, uh, various forms of courts, uh, assisted outpatient treatment, you know, which we can talk a little bit more about. Uh, but yeah, it's a concerted attack uh, on these very, very limited rights that we gained uh, about 50 years ago. I think going back to what Liat was talking about earlier, when we talk about places like Guantanamo Bay prisons, or uh, when I was talking about the 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 Indian boarding schools, uh, particularly targeting native populations, or when we were talking about the protest psychosis and targeting civil rights activists, particularly black civil rights activists, and their notes reading that they that they had schizophrenia on the basis of of uh, their association with the civil rights movement, you know. Um, Again, it is it is it is a reminder that we cannot think about these things as separate issues. And um, when you are against, uh, you know, the, the the implementation and expansion of prisons, uh, because the United States is the most incarcerated people in the world, um, when you are against a lot of these other institutions and you don't take a stance against psychiatric institutions and the expansion of psychiatric institutions um, because you believe it only helps people that don't know better, I would invite you to examine that thinking mm -hmm. very critically. I want to just jump on what Vesper is saying to say that, you know, I think it's sometimes um, people kind of, I'm thinking about, you know, students that I teach and, and people in workshops that are like, yes, the protopsychosis and uh, drapetobania and um, stealing horses syndrome. I mean, all of those are obviously like fake um, and, and racist and colonialist like diagnosis. But I think we can go further like Vesper is urging us to do and to kind of critique the whole, not just um particular thing that to us are like egregious, mm -hmm. right? So it's important to remember that Janet, Jonathan Metzl is a psychiatrist who wrote The Protopsychosis. Um, and uh, I know I know Jonathan well. And But 
you know, it's really important. And he's not an anti-psychiatrist, psychiatrist, just to make sure. Um, and so it's really important to kind of think through a, like a broader critique of psychiatry um, that I think the entryway to could be um, these kind of egregious or what people see, I, I should say, I don't think either Vesper or Leia or I are saying that these are particularly egregious. We're saying that this is part and parcel of the psychiatric system that is like a coercive, uh, medicalizing, pathologizing system that's rooted in eugenics um, and other systems of oppression. And so it's really important to kind of take that wholesale. So I just want to emphasize the importance of what Vesper is just bringing up. up. Absolutely. I think oftentimes um, I call this like, in my own notes, like a a la carte critique of pathology where you have, you know, it's like the critique of pathology um, can sometimes be taken up piecemeal by people where they say, well, this pathology is bullshit and that pathology is bullshit, but like schizophrenia is real and dangerous and I don't want to share space with that person. And and it, it can be, um, I think, also easily appropriated as we saw uh, Getz say, you know, he brought in this critique of pharma that can you can hear quite often, right, which is this kind of conspiratorial like pharma is hooking people directly, you know, in a kind of... Um, intentional process to extract profit by tricking people, right? Which is, yeah, I mean, there's like truth to that, right? But the truth to that pales in comparison to the actual truth, which is like that pharma is part of hegemonic capitalism and that capitalism extracts and alienates. And the point of pharmaceutical development is often very different from what we talk about the point of pharmaceuticals as. And the idea of cure is is heavily loaded and has this really complicated history that most people um, have no uh, exposure to or, or no sort of baseline on. But it is really interesting how sometimes, you know, in this conversation, like, you know, this is not something that's going on between us, but like when these conversations leave circles of folks like us who work on these things and who think on these things, it can sometimes like be taken up only in part, right? And And there's often the case made that, yes, this is all true, but there is still like some edge case that requires us to um, have um, coercive treatment, right? That there are some moments where it is acceptable, right? And I wonder if we could actually sort of talk against that um, sort of framing for a second before we move on to the next one. Yeah, I I was wondering if I could jump in about so-called anisognosia. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, You know, when, when, um, Liat was talking about how there's, yeah, these, these, we can look at certain diagnoses of the past, you know, the ones that, that both Liat and Vesper referenced and say, oh, that's absolutely ridiculous. Like that is clearly social control and uh, white supremacy and right in action. Um, but, you know, what is often bantered about in, in some of the justification for why we need to expand the criteria for forced treatment is because people, uh, the, again, this certain, you know, category of people with severe mental illness uh, are afflicted with something called anisognosia, which it's an appropriation of a term that was um, coined in the early 20th century to describe people who'd experienced brain injury, like traumatic brain injury, and didn't realize that they'd had a brain injury. And it's just been appropriated and sort of superimposed onto, onto this group of targeted people to say that they're unaware 
um, of their need for, uh, they don't know that they need help, essentially. And you can sort of hear that rhetoric sprinkled in throughout the left and the right. And I think it's real. it's again, it is pseudoscience that's justifying, you know, coercion. Um, and it's it's been around, you know, really used in the policy sphere pretty much since the late 90s. But I think what's one, one of the defining characteristics of anisognosia, this is like what is such a mindfuck with it, is that it's di- disagreeing with medical opinion is one of the characteristics. Uh, just, just one definition I'll read. Um, it's a lack of ability to perceive the realities of one one's own condition. It's a person's inability to accept that they have a condition that matches up with their symptoms or formal diagnosis. Uh, This occurs despite significant evidence of a diagnosis and despite second and even third medical opinions confirming the validity of a diagnosis. So yeah, it's really uh, gaslighting people for resisting uh, the pathologizing of their lived experience, right? And and you you may not hear this specific term always used, but you'll use you'll see it referred to um, when we think about um, Eric Adams in the rollout of his involuntary removals plan in New York City. Um, he said that you know, quote, we'll continue to do all we can to persuade those in need of help to accept services voluntarily but we will not abandon them if those efforts cannot overcome the person's unawareness of their own illness, right? So it's it's just the idea that they don't know they're sick and we have to sweep in as these, you know, saviors uh, to force them into the help that they so desperately need. And, and it's always the, it's always, always, always the pushback that folks get when we say, you know, people should be allowed to voluntarily uh, choose services that they want to access, right? And the argument is like, well, people won't. They won't do it. They won't go voluntarily. Um, and it's it's a very, very hard thing to counter. Um, and you'll hear it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Actually, if I could also add to that as well, there was mm-hmm. a recent involuntary commitment hearing in in Massachusetts, and um, it was it was actually it was a follow up to to one that was interrupted by an electrical fire. Oh but my gosh! <laughs> the the original one, there was a psychiatrist um, from Bridgewater State Hospital, which is a Department of Corrections run psychiatric institution in Massachusetts, that used anosognosia as as a reason for 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 the need for this bill and we see this in a lot of different places and i do i do think it alludes to the to the wider picture which i want other uh other folks from from different civil rights movements to really take away when listening to this is is the fact that when we talk about surveillance capitalism or types of capitalism it doesn't just apply to tech it applies to using these um these diagnoses these forms of uh, pathologizing people um again as new ways of social control that are more subtle and then institutions as a way of social control that are more subtle or often perceived as subtle but the experience um and the pain of it is not subtle at all um i think I think something that's so important with that is is that is that when we view these ideas of capitalism, we're taking things that are outside of the market and we're bringing them in. We're pathologizing behavior. We're doing this. We're doing this. We see this with ODD. We see this with borderline personality disorder. We see this with labels of noncompliance and serious mental illness. You know, so so I think 
I think it, it is so, so, so important to, to understand and unpack these as tools for, for silencing and again, controlling populations. Next, next. All right, our next one. Okay, we've got, finally, we've got Democratic New York Mayor Eric Adams. This is from September of 2021. Um, he's speaking with the hosts of MSNBC's Morning Joe, but also Al Sharpton is there. And he speaks in the middle of this clip, but it's kind of this interjection. He goes off on a tangent being like, latte liberals just don't understand uh, the position that Eric and I are coming from being raised by like single mothers. We just, you know, some people just need good cops in their neighborhood, not no cops. And so we've actually like I've trimmed out Al Sharpton's interjection in this clip because it's like about a minute long. And I want to just be able to juxtapose the question from the Morning Joe hosts that Adams is actually responding to um, in Adams response. So, again, this is from September of 2021. If I recall correctly, this is actually like an appearance kind of um, discussing uh, the primary results. Um, so it's before he's actually mayor. But, you know, how, how maddening is it that, that for some reason there are some people who think allowing homeless uh, populations to grow on the street is somehow more humane? Wait, there's nothing humane about somebody with a mental health problem sleeping on a grate when it's 15 degrees outside. Without That's insanity. It is. It is. It, it, it's bad for the quality of life of this city, but it's even worse for those suffering it's outside. Without a doubt. And you, and you see, we made a big mistake when Willowbrook, uh, a few employees uh, harmed uh, those who were patients in Willowbrook on Staten Island. It, there was a reaction from the advocates to close down Willowbrook, deinstitutionalize those who need around the clock services, but we didn't balance that with real programs to give it give it to them. There's a great pro, uh, institution called Fountain House. They have an 85% stability rate of taking people out of street homelessness, building trust, and putting them into permanent housing. Mm -hmm. That's what we need to That's invest great. our yes, dollars. We, we could talk to you forever, Democratic <laughs> Come back. Of New York Thank you City, so much Eric for Adams. being here. Thank you Thank very, you. very Thanks, much. Mr. Thank you. So this is the infamous Willowbrook was a mistake. Closing Willowbrook was a mistake comment from Eric Adams. And this one's a little bit more complicated because in some ways, like Eric Adams is a cartoonish uh, Democrat that many people on the left have no love for. But on the other side of this, right, um, what he's saying uh, after he says, you know, we closed Willowbrook and it was a mistake is technically true, right? Which is that we we closed a lot of institutions. And as we talked about at the beginning, that, that funding did not go to the things it was supposed to go to. And there's a whole other conversation about, you know, whether those were adequate and, and sort of that there. But one thing that I want us to sort of focus on in this clip specifically is how the idea um, is really about sort of that that all other things are already foregone conclusions, that this is off the table, and that really sort of what makes sense and also what comforts the host, that this is from like a larger um, 12 or 13 minute segment there that's very concerned with the aesthetics of, of having unhoused people around New York and what that does to like the New York quality of life. And so it's really telling, I think, that his statement here, as you can hear at the end of the clip, like 
really comforts, um, especially the white woman who's who's one of the hosts on Morning Joe, like who's there sort of like, oh, finally, a good answer. You're just going to sweep them off the street and I don't have to look at them anymore. And also like the packaging of we will help them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because that's that that's the overall uh, like, like, like if, if you listen to it again, you know, it's just like it's this idea of like, oh, yeah, we will help them by doing this. Um, and and it's in their best interest. And and who knows why those activists wanted deinstitutionalization? It's it's that way of framing it or, or, or also saying that we don't have enough in the community or that's not it's not done well enough. But what is not mentioned is um, how Mayor Eric Adams and the state of New York um, defunded, I believe it was four out of eight of the respites in the state, the very community supports that they're saying that there isn't enough of or that they're not done well of. So hmm, you defunded them and then you blamed us and then you just kind of continued on with your day. Uh, it's just uh, it's really malicious. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the us versus them, you know, I think rears up here, um, like we were talking about earlier, which is always kind of the question, you know, this, um, I always call him Trader Joe, Morning Joe, whatever. There's always a Joe, right? Some Joe that's asking the question. And the question of the Joe is always something like, what do we do with the homeless mentally ill? Right? As if it's like a monolithic population that A, actually exists, um, right? Like there's an inherent thing called mental illness and it attaches itself to people who are unhoused. Um, and, you know, then it's like, what do we do? Because we're obviously um, not that. Um, so what do we do with them? Um, which I think is a, just a reiteration of this. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know what to call it because it's not um, NIMBY, right? It's not like uh, not in my backyard, but it is also something that springs up in these uh, in a lot of gentrification discourses in New York and elsewhere of um, what do we do with this? And we being the people who uh, weren't here. And of course, the people who were here first. Uh, were the dispossessed people, um, meaning native indigenous and so on. And then people who um, were longtime residents of places like uh, New York and Chicago and San Francisco and, you know, and so on. And then, you know, what do we do now with the quote unquote homeless mentally ill? It's like unsightly and blah, blah, blah. And so I think it's a continuation um, of these uh, discourses that are very connected to to capitalism and are very connected to the fact that um, you know this us and them eugenic discourse. Um, and I I hate to tell it to people, and maybe people will be uh, afraid if I say that. But we like disabled and mad people. We're like everywhere. <laughs> so uh, this idea of the us and them, um, you know, we're we're everywhere. <laughs> so. It, it, it's a it's a rhetorical device, but it's also like a very dangerous um, tool that's used in the creation of these carceral policies. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I would just add to it again, you hear this echo of like those uncompassionate people who are all about civil rights are just totally cool with folks being unhoused in 15 degree below weather like you know what i mean it's just this again this juxtaposition um of us as the moral arbiters versus those those rights-based people 
Uh, and then, yeah, there's also this kind of a few bad apples rhetoric that we hear, you know, referring to Willowbrook, like, oh, oops, like just a couple of employees to just totally elide the fact that like, yeah, there was systemic abuses in institutions. It wasn't just like a few here and there, you know, uh, uh, past and present. You know, I, I live in the colony of Virginia and just, you know, this year there was um, a murder at a facility in Dinwiddie, Virginia. Irvo Otieno was um, placed on a emergency custody order. And you can really see how the prison and the asylum are intertwined in a tragedy like this. Like right now, there's like seven sheriff's deputies and three uh, hospital employees were indicted on second degree murder charges. And CMS is calling for an investigation into the facility. So there's just this like real denial um, about the fact that these these um, institutions are sites of harm. Um, and, and, you know, that's the piece that I think is so, so important to keep keep highlighting that this is not in the past and um, and it is continuing to echo um, in, in really tragic and um, horrific ways. Absolutely. And, and I think the thing, too, that can be really frustrating is that, you know, Oftentimes you'll see people like like Adams, you know, sort of building the rhetoric that becomes um, things like his, you know, policy for expanding involuntary removal to basically be not just a clinical encounter sort of situation, but also something that's like um, a judgment based on sight, right? The the idea that, oh, well, we're going to sort of look for people who are visibly not, not taking care of themselves to push past the the former line in the sand, which was like danger to themselves or others, uh, quote unquote. So and the thing, too, is that, you know, New York has had a long history of sort of being connected to, uh, in a policy sense, to a very specific intellectual figure um, who has had a huge influence on this discourse named E. Fuller Tory. And he's a guy who, um, you know, his project is called the Treatment Advocacy Center. This past year, there was a really, you know, gross piece on him that the New York Times did, you know, talking, it opened with like, you know, Dr. Tory is old and infirm with Parkinson's disease and his hand is shaking and he's so disabled and yet he's pulling out his records to read me the reporter terrifying stories from the 1970s and the 1980s and the 90s and the 2000s that he has collected over decades that he uses these anecdotes anecdotal stories, right, um, that are sensationalized just as much as like those accusations are levied at us to um, prove to the reporter that people with schizophrenia are really dangerous, right? And this it's this romanticized, fucking disgusting profile of him that came out this year. And it casually just makes light of what the New York Times calls, quote, Dr. Tory's influence on New York City is profound. Um, and they sort of say that as if it's a good thing, right? And part of what they're talking about is that uh, Mayor Adams is an advisor on his involuntary outpatient policy changes is this guy named Brian Stetton, who first worked on like mental health law in the late 90s in 1999 when he was working in Elliot Spitzer's attorney general office drafting what's called Kendra's Law. 
um, which is like a very important sort of shift in mental health policy in New York City that happened um, and result of a like very widely publicized murder in the subway. And so you have this sort of severe mental illness framing, the idea of like, well, this is just common sense. This is just what people want. And underneath that, right, is actually like a very small pool of people doing the intellectual labor, doing the kind of work, doing the policy advocacy, designing the policy, reproducing these ideas, not some sort of broad consensus of like, you know, this is like every single person who works on mental health policy thinks these are a good thing. And yet this small group of people have had such a profound influence, right? And part of that reflects the way that carceral sanism is not just about, you know, the interpersonal things or the actions of one person coming from that perspective within our system, but that's literally materially the way the system itself has been made and constructed. It is the material of the system of healthcare, of uh, pathology, of diagnosis, and of psychiatry in the United States, and not just in the U.S., but all over the place. Absolutely. I think another piece, too, is this like, and I, we've talked about this kind of throughout this idea of moral failure, right? Mm-hmm. That, 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 that we are of this moral failing and, and Eiffel or Tori is talking about just that, this idea that, that people who, who have these, these diagnoses or who are experiencing emotional distress or in these spaces, um, will tarnish the morality of our society. Um, and we've seen again, you know, how this has impacted and targeted many different communities. Um, and, and when we were talking earlier about, about, you know, capitalism and this idea of replication, once again, if you look back hundreds of years ago, you would always say like, oh, well, that person is occupied by bad spirits. This is what they're going through. Like, clearly they, they need this or that. Well, now we're looking at, you know, people, people who, who, who are experiencing or, or diagnosed with schizophrenia um, or experiencing psychosis, that these folks are in some way of a moral failing because they are a danger to society. These blanket statements, right? Um, and again, using horrifying cases and instances often pushed by these same institutions to justify it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so important, you know, just to underscore what what you were saying, Beatrice, about how such a small group of people have had such outsized influence and, and right, and how carceral sanism has really paved the way for that. Uh, and I think, you know, looking at you know, the, I knew as soon as I saw Eric Adams' plan, I was like, somebody with treatment advocacy has to have been involved in this. And it's just this wild dystopian, um, you know, this sort of the same players reemerging um, with great success, right, to kind of frame, quote, untreated severe mental illness as this public safety issue. And every time there's been a policy push towards this, it's been after some kind of extremely rare, of course, tragic incident, um, whether it's a mass shooting, whether it's a subway pushing, again, highly, highly rare, rare incidents to move these policies forward. And and yeah, in the 24 years since TAC was founded by E. Fuller Tory, I think we now have AOT laws in 47 states in the District of Columbia. They're actively trying to get it going again in 
in um, Massachusetts. They've been trying for years and years and years and, and Vesper y'all have been pushing back there so hard. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing to really point out is that again, like all of these policies are, um, you know, just have these glaring racial disparities, right. In terms of their implementation so that they find that like black and brown people are, you know, um, at least five times more likely to be subjected to these kinds of regimes of quote, assisted outpatient treatment than white counterparts. Um, and, and yeah, and that, um, you know, there's been all of this research that's shown, you know, even in the face of that, that the compulsory treatment has no difference in terms of outcomes for people. And of course, we know that it causes trauma and harm. Um, but in this, in spite of all of those things, right, they continue to push these policies and they continue to gain traction. Mm-hmm. Just to say, I mean, anecdotally, um, I don't know why I want to bring in uh, joy into this conversation, but <laughs> it so happens. But I think that uh, the original way that we met, I think the first time Leah and Vesper and I met, uh, we me- almost immediately found out um, our uh, commonality is in our, our arc nemesis, which is, you know, the <laughs> treatment advocacy center amongst others. Um, and the reason why I say that is because I think people assume that these things like the treatment advocacy center are these um, uh, nodes with like uh, billions of dollars and like hundreds of people. And this is like five guys or something, you know, like headed by this one guy. Um, and it's, um, I think that, that it's kind of like taking the curtain off, you know, like the wizard of Oz, um, and really showing that this is defeatable, right? Mm -hmm. These are just a few people who are spinning this, this awful narrative. And yes, it is completely, um, has its tentacles in very real material, practices but this is also what i mean by um not to fall into this the more things are the whatever um the more they stay the same and we come full circle and all Mm -hmm. that because we now have like decades of knowing what to do with this because it's the same thing um and they've built an infrastructure and we've built an infrastructure you know, mm-hmm. of, of resistance to it. Um, so I think that's important to note. Absolutely. And I mean, I I want to sort of underscore like the fact that we're not just the only one saying like, you know, that the guy doing this policy for Mayor Adams is like a, a full on true believer acolyte of um, E. Fuller Tory, who again has been the central figure for decades pushing for, you know, expanding what's called assistant outpatient treatment, which is AOT that Leah referenced, which is something that we talked about in the carceral sanism panel at socialism conference as a kind of rebrand, right? The the AOT label takes coercive treatment and tries to make it sound more gentle and and more nice and this is really kind of like one of his main issues that he has spent his life um pushing for and again it's not us saying that uh Brian Stetton who is Adam's policy guy his like mental health policy guy that he's um 
you know, an acolyte. It's the New York Times, again, positively saying that 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 he had this interaction as a young policymaker um, with, with Tory and that Tory turned him into uh, he, quote, became a true believer. And we're seeing, you know, what is essentially, you know, a, a crusade that um, we're seeing increasing calls to take up and uh, join up with this kind of framework. But the thing that gets difficult, right, is that and here's maybe where we can talk a little bit about how to deal with when our comrades, when folks, you know, maybe that were uh, in collaboration with uh, other aligned movements, um, folks even sometimes in the abolition movement, you know, sometimes you even see the work of like stuff like the Treatment Advocacy Center cited by people who are ostensibly on our side. Um, I'm going to give an example from 2014. I'm not trying to come for James Kilgore here, but I'm just trying to demonstrate what I mean. This is from something he wrote called Repackaging Mass Incarceration, the Rise of Carceral Humanism and Non-Alternative Alternatives. And it's from June 9th, 2014. So he's talking about and defining carceral humanism. He says, um, one of the most uh, currently this repackaging um, of carcerality uh, assumes several forms. One of the most important is carceral humanism or what some people refer to as incarceration light. Carceral humanism recasts the jailers as caring social service providers. The cutting edge of carceral humanism is in the field of mental health. According to a recent report by the Treatment Advocacy Center, in 2012, the U.S. had over 350,000 people with serious mental health issues in prisons and jails, as compared to just 35,000 in the remaining state mental health facilities. Prisons and jails have become the new asylums, and the jailers are waking up to the fact that mental health facilities also represent a new cash cow. And so here's an example of someone making an argument um, against, you know, these sort of non-alternative alternatives, non-reformist reforms, um, speaking critically of the prison industrial complex, of the expansion of carcerality, and yet citing the knowledge production of a group like Treatment Advocacy Center in order to make that point, which is kind of frustrating and terrifying in equal parts, frankly, whenever I come across an example like this. So I wonder if this is maybe a way for us to pause for a moment to sort of talk about the non-monopoly on this, um, specifically also coming from the left and how sometimes this is um, one of the sort of points of the most friction that I encounter also personally just with other leftists and other people doing similar work. I want to name that um, I've encountered this a lot too, uh, working with folks who who identify as so-called prison abolitionists. And I think I do want to start with the fact that it's not prison or police abolition, if there isn't psychiatric abolition as well. Um, and, and when we talk about what psychiatric abolition is, I think a lot of people also don't always understand that what we're referring to is models of community care um that that can sustain and support people in their right to live in community interdependently um without the 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 oversight of of a surveilling institution a carceral institution and i think i think there there are such internalized ideas that are again you know uh, mass mass marketed mass shared um kind of across the board uh that that that, that really um that really lead to 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 carceral sanism um in our society in that idea that 
that we um, are once again, you know, uh, perceived as not only like unable or disposable, but also dangerous. And I think that that's that's one of the piece people can talk about, oh, you can abolish every prison. But for some reason, these psychiatric institutions, the the, the, the prisons <laughs> for mad people, they have to stay around, <laughs> you know, um, and, and it's it is so important for us to really, really, again, examine that that line of thinking and where it comes from. There is a multi there are multiple multi-billion dollar industries being put into all of this. Um, suicide prevention being a multi-billion dollar industry, um, the treatment advocacy center and, and, and their campaigns, um, who they are backed by, right? Uh, pharmaceutical companies with philanthropic arms pretending to be on our side um, and, and a lot of these other pieces. So if you are a prison abolitionist, in the community and you are saying abolish prisons but then you're taking a stance against mad disabled people and saying like well we need these institutions around uh to to realize these ideas you are playing right into their hands so well said yeah yeah and and i would just add to that um you know it really goes to prove the success of the jails are the new prisons or jails are the new mental institutions slash asylums rhetoric right that um has been really sort of run with this trope that's been you know mass marketed like vesper said and yeah just thinking about how you know my friends and I would get so irate whenever like E. Fuller Tory would appear on Democracy Now! <laughs> you know, my God, example, yes. like pushing That's this why rhetoric. I stopped watching Democracy Now! No lie. Please continue. Oh, yeah. This was like even as recent as 2019, you know, they were kind of beating this drum on Democracy Now! And, and yeah, so I just, I think I would just echo that you know, if you consider yourself to be a leftist or abolitionist and hear hear this rhetoric, right, that jails are the new mental institutions to like really question that and question who benefits from that and and push back on that. Um, and yeah, and actually listen to um, what mad and disabled people themselves are saying. And I'll say like anyone who is encouraging, you know, mental institutions, like I've always said, like, why don't you go stay in one? I mean, I'm, I'm against all, <laughs> I'm an abolitionist, but it's like for those of us who have been in those places, right. And of course there's differential treatment based on race and class, but like overall, they're just horrific experiences most of the time. And I think it's just so easy for people who have not been psychiatrically in incarcerated to say, this is care. And this, is help when they've never experienced the full carceral force of these institutions. Mm -hmm. And I also want to point out that sometimes in, um, you know, disabled and mad community, especially amongst uh, people who are maybe um, less politicized um, or uh, people who are also working with family members mm -hmm. um, and, and so on, there's a notion of... Um, there, there is also the notion of bring back the asylum. So, so you know, I, I really want to um, say that even within our own communities, I mean, all three of us like work within disabled and mad, you know, movements. Um, we can't ignore the fact that this is kind of somewhat happening mm -hmm. uh, again within within that sphere as well. Although, like I said, it's more from people who are either less politicized or um, 
you know, or family members of, which is its own kind of issue. Um, you know, I think that people who have been um, in the self-advocacy movements, for example, have said for pretty much since the 70s that they want to close down all institutions for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, right? So there are some things that have been very clear from the get-go, and yet there are also, um, you know, um, some um, uh, organizations or or cries to end everything except, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of like a la carte approach that you were mentioning earlier. So I just think that's uh, really important uh, to kind of pay attention to as well. Absolutely. And honestly, I feel like it's it can be difficult, right? Because it's not like um, we're trying to like say, oh, we are privy to this take and like you who do not have this take like are fucking up. Like, yes, that's true. But it's also that this stuff is kind of like hidden even within disability communities, as you're saying, Liat, like for a very long time, movements for various types of disability liberation would often like frame their goals in explicit um, opposition to like other people who fall under that same umbrella, right? Whether it's talking about severity of disability, um, justifying entry into the community. And a lot of times it's like, you know, uh, framed as if this is some sort of necessary rhetorical compromise, which is um, absolutely not the case. And I think it, it sort of reproduces tremendous harm in terms of like how this shifts social reproduction, because as we're seeing, like the idea of carceral humanism like applies to all of what we're talking about. Right. And yet that knowledge production that is rooted in a widespread campaign to expand um, you know, carceral practices and justify the removal of, of disabled and mad people from society is also being used right, to, to support things that we do care about and we do um, share goals on. And so it's it can be like a moment um, where also I think a lot of like disabled and mad people like can can look at the left and say, oh, well, I'm not a part of that. That's not for me. Right. Because I, you know, I'm not seeing sort of these hard lines in the sand that are really hard lines for me, maybe reproduced in, say, like the abolitionist movement, which is which is why it's it's important to like stop and have these conversations and like sift through the bullshit um, with the kind of fine sieve that we have been, because it's not like this stuff is like obvious, like we have spent like um an hour and a half now talking about four clips and we haven't even gotten to the Wall Street Journal editorial that like started this whole um, recording as the plan because it's actually that kind of layered and complex um, and not accessible that it requires unpacking it at this this kind of um, extreme level. And yet it's also repetitive, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, it, the four clips you, you showed are... Um, some of the main arguments in the Wall Street Journal piece, because it's also written by the same people and kind of said by people who work with the same people and so on. So it's a repetitive piece that's, um, you know, been successfully repeated so much, like you said, that even people on the left uh, kind of absorb it as kind of a a truism, um, which is also part of the problem, as you mentioned. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think if we look at the Wall Street Journal piece, particularly in that 
piece, they mentioned the Worcester Recovery Center and Hospital. And um, that's based in Massachusetts. And uh, I, I, I never call it the Worcester Recovery Center and Hospital. I call it Worcester State Hospital. Um, I spent some time in Worcester State Hospital as a patient um, before it became the Worcester Recovery Center and Hospital. And um, I did some work in there as a peer bridger, as someone who would help people get out of that institution and back into the community. And I can tell you that from being in that space, it is very much a panopticon um, where people are being watched constantly, or if they're not being watched in any moments, uh, which is doubtful that they would still have that sense of being watched. Uh, you have censored materials and you have an enclosed courtyard. Um, you have a lot of different pieces there. So, so you see again, uh, this use of a key example of a modernized, um, institution as a call back to bring back the asylums. Um, and, uh, there's a serious danger in that because again, it is the subtlety of, um, we will control and censor people and keep them out of the public view. And we will do the exact same harms we've done in the past. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know that I have much to add to that. I mean, it's, it really like y'all both have really summed it up for now, but yeah, it is. It's, you know, my friend. Bruce Owens Grimm talks about how a haunting is a repetition, right? And I think we're so haunted by the asylum and it just continues to echo. And not to say again that things are exactly the same, but it's like this remaking and re-haunting um, of our society that that lands in, in very real ways um, uh, on people who are most harmed by the society. Absolutely. Um, now I have sort of the task. Maybe, you know what, maybe we just be really honest. Um, so we had this plan to go through these four clips, which turned into this beautiful and nebulous breakdown that I think has been so rewarding to participate in. And this is getting to be quite a, a, a meaty episode at this point. So we just, you know, we're discussing the, the possibility of doing a second part to this episode, um, which may, of course, you know, become an ongoing conversation at this point. It's not like there's a, a shortage of things to talk about in this arena right now, unfortunately. But um, I think we're going to run out of time to, to do the close read of the Wall Street Journal piece called It's Time to Bring Back Asylums. But um, we will uh, revisit it. We will reconvene. We will record a part two and we will go hard on that one. We'll get a chance to talk about Things like, uh, you know, the role that um, the narrative about psychiatric drug innovation plays in this. We'll talk about Thorazine. We'll talk about the solutionism of it all and um, the ways that also in this this Wall Street Journal piece in particular, it's very interesting. It kind of gets into this, uh, the aesthetics also of um, the asylum and kind of makes the claim that you know, this might not be the look we want, but this is the solution we need that I think is a, a really sort of powerful and important frame to also give plenty of room to push back on. So um, I just want to sort of, one, reiterate like how fucking grateful I am for you three and for this time that we've had to talk today. And we've gone through so much. But um, as a final takeaway, 
we will reconvene. But for now, I want to take a second to sort of dwell on final thoughts here to wrap things up. And really, I just think that what what we've been able to do today in this conversation um, is really talk about like what does it mean to to call to reopen asylums, um, and what are those calls actually um, naming in in that demand, right? And I, I really so appreciate all of the work that's been done here to articulate that and make that obvious and sort of peel the layers back to actually show you know, the real structural undergirding of, of what exactly um, people are talking about when they make this claim that this is the only quote-unquote solution to the quote-unquote intersecting crisis of housing and mental health, right? Which is the kind of euphemism that actually we ended up really um, ripping to shreds quite effectively today, if I do say so myself. I second that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I would just say, you know, like we're getting close to Halloween season and just kind of rethinking about, you know, just to follow up on my comment about haunting, like we're, you know, there's going to be all of these, um, you know, haunted asylum exhibits, uh, you know, year after year we see them. But to me, just what's truly terrifying is this, um, you know, encroaching carceral Satanism. But what does give me like a sense of possibility is the resistance to it, you know, and I, I hope we can also talk a lot more about that uh, at a future date. Um, but yeah, like there's a growing resistance and there's an ongoing resistance. And that's what keeps me going through all of this bullshit. Um, but yeah, really, really happy to be here and to be in conversation with you all. Absolutely. I think, uh, I think first off, I want to say thank you, uh, as always for such a wonderful conversation, um, and, and, and to be in this space. And I look forward to continuing to have this conversation. And I would say that I echo a lot of what we were saying where I, I do see a resistance, uh, forming as more and more people realize for themselves that like, oh, wow, you know, they, they, they might just start identifying as neurodivergent or mad or disabled, and they might be reclaiming that for themselves. And they might be revisiting or coming to understand some of their experiences as like, oh, coercive and carceral. And do other people notice this? And then like, mm. are starting to speak out. So I see that. I see that inspiration and I see that momentum. And I hope we can continue to move it forward. Hell yeah. I think this is the perfect and, and beautiful place to leave it for today. I'm so grateful to the three of you for joining me. Again, listeners, our guests are Vesper Moore, Leah Harris, and Liat Ben Moshe. As always, patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod you'll get access to the second weekly bonus episode that comes out every monday and our entire back catalog of bonus episodes and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes pick up a copy of health communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library and pre-order jules's new book coming in january called a short history of trans misogyny and follow us at death panel underscore as always Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week.